The title of our message today is Jesus Cleanses the Temple Explained. I've got a subtitle, Why Was Jesus So Angry? It is the only time we see Jesus this angry in the Bible. We see him confronting the scribes and Pharisees in Matthew 23, where he says to them, woe unto you, you scribes, you Pharisees, and you hypocrites, like 16 times in that chapter. And I can't imagine that he was smiling when he did that. A lot of times when they have different TV shows about Jesus, they have him smiling at certain times that I think, I don't think he was smiling there. Jesus does this twice. He enters the temple and cleanses it early on in his ministry. Right after the wedding in Cana, he makes his way to Jerusalem, cleanses the temple. And then after he rides in on the donkey, he cleanses the temple again. Whether or not it's the next day or whether it's that same day, some find a debate in that. But nevertheless, he cleansed the temple twice. I also believe that this is supernatural. This is a miracle. I believe that Jesus is taking his authority. They certainly had security in the temple. They had temple guards that were there. And when someone came in and made a ruckus, they could get rid of them quickly. But I believe that Jesus came with the authority of the Messiah as he came to cleanse this the, the temple. Let me also just say this. This is one of the most favorite passages for critics, critics of the Bible, for atheists who are critics. And I've got to tell you, I don't quite understand why atheists are so vocal against God, are so vocal against Christians, why they want to attack so much. If I were an atheist, if I were strictly a materialist, if I strictly believed that when you die, that's it, you go away. I would not care what anyone believed. I wouldn't spend my time mocking people for what they believed. You could believe that Mickey Mouse was your savior and I would say good for you because it wouldn't matter to me. But it makes me think that there's something more that an atheist would end up hating God, have a hatred towards Christians and a hatred towards God. And there are the, the neo-atheists like Dawkins and Hitchens and others, and they have that tone and I think that a lot of atheists follow them because they pick up that tone. But they like to criticize Jesus for this. They like to mock Christians that Jesus flipped over tables and Jesus was angry. However, as much as they try to mock it, I don't see it as out of his character. And I'll explain why as we make our way through the study. Now, because there are four different accounts of this event, we have it in each of the three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And we have it in the book of John in the beginning of his ministry. I wanted to harmonize those events for us and see what we could learn from a harmony of them. Not, not any one of them gives us all of what Jesus said or all of what happened, but when we harmonize it, we see these things. Number one, Jesus went to the temple. The Old Testament has a prophecy that the Messiah would suddenly go to his temple. That's number one. Number two, he made a whip. I don't know. Well, let's talk about these later on. Let me, let me break them down later on. Let me just go through the list first of all. Otherwise, I'll do it twice. And we don't need that, right? So he made a whip. He drove out those who bought and sold. He didn't just drive out those who were selling. He went into the area, which was the court of the Gentiles, 
and he began to drive, made this whip and began to drive out the people who were buying and selling. So there were people there who wanted to purchase a, 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 a lamb, a cow, a cattle, uh, a dove, and Jesus stopped them from doing it. He drove out those who bought and sold. Next, he drove out the livestock. He actually opened up the pens and drove the livestock out. He flipped, he, he poured out the money changers' money. He went to the table, grabbed their bags of money, and dumped their money out, and then flipped over their tables. He also stopped people from carrying goods through the temple. As people were coming down and seeing this chaos that was happening, they were passing through with things to sell, maybe things that they had bought, and Jesus stopped them from coming through. Not only that, he flipped over the seat of those who sold doves. And I'm not quite sure exactly what that means, if there was a special seat for selling doves, but he flipped over the seat. Doesn't say he released the doves. It didn't say he smashed their container or opened it up. It simply says he flipped over the seat, which very well may be releasing the doves. We're not completely sure. He made statements. We're going to look at those statements because they help us learn what we can learn from this event. He also healed people right afterwards. He went in the temple and he began to pray for people and began to heal people. And afterwards, he taught in the temple. And we're told that the scribes and Pharisees wanted to get him for what he had done, but they couldn't do it because the people heard him gladly. So those are the events that took place when Jesus cleansed the temple. Let's read our text in Luke, and then we're going to come back and break these down and see what we can learn from them. So we pick it up in Luke 19, verses 45 through 48. Very short section in Luke. Longer in Matthew, longer in Mark, longer in John. This is the briefest of them. So verse 45, then he went into the temple. This is after he rode in on the donkey, wept on his way down the Mount of Olives, was, was hailed as, as king and Hosanna as he rode into Jerusalem. And then when he got there, he went into the temple and he began to drive out those who bought and sold in it, saying to them, it is written, my house is a house of prayer but you have made it a den of thieves. And he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes and the leaders of the people sought to destroy him and were unable to do anything for all the people were very attentive to hear him. Now, what can we learn from the details of these events? First of all, he went to the temple. We know he went to the temple at least twice, there are some that believe that he only went on the final Passover, but we know he went in the beginning of his ministry. And then again, at the end of his ministry, he cleansed the temple twice, which means that he went in and cleared them out, told them this is to be a place of prayer. But at some point, those trying to sell merchandise looked around, didn't see Jesus and set the tables back up again. Since I'm going to kind of give you a connection now, the temple is a place where God dwelt. God's presence was in the temple. And we also are the temple of the Holy Spirit, the Bible says. And so it's appropriate that God would cleanse us from time to time. That when we develop wrong thoughts, wrong hearts, wrong attitudes, and there's none of us who don't. Maybe some do more than others. 
But all of us at times need that. And God convicts us. And I love the conviction of God. I've often said I would rather have God speak to me and convict me that I'm doing something wrong than not speak to me at all. I want to be open to what God wants to correct. And the Holy Spirit convicting you of something that needs to change is different than condemnation. The Bible says there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You are not condemned. You will not be condemned. But that doesn't mean he won't convince you, which is what the word convict comes from, that he won't convince you that there's something in your life that needs to change. And we all want to be humble to be able to have God reveal that. I like to pray, know us, try us, search us, show us if there's anything that's evil inside of us and then work it out in our lives. The Bible says that the outer man is perishing, but the inner man is being renewed day by day. And I think that Jesus has cleansed this temple, not just twice, but several times. He does that, he does that quite a bit. Now, it was also foretold that the Messiah would come to his temple. And this is Malachi 3.1. Behold, I send by messenger, and he will prepare a way before you. So that's John the Baptist. Before Jesus, John claimed this particular verse. And then it says, and the Lord whom you seek, the word for Lord there is the tetragrammaton, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The tetragrammaton, by the way, is the Y-H-W-H, just in case you don't know. Sometimes we just use words as pastors and we forget that not everybody knows, right? That's the name Yahweh, we believe is how it was pronounced. By the way, we're fairly confident that that's the way it was pronounced, not 100%, but fairly. So the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant. Jesus brought a new covenant. Jesus said, a new covenant I give to you. When he, when he gave the glass of wine on the night he was arrested, he said, this is the new covenant of my blood. In another place, he said, a new covenant I give you that you would love one another. Love needs to be that major part. So it says, he, even the messenger of the new covenant, which is interesting that the new covenant is love. And here he is ah, flipping tables over and driving people out, which tells us that there is a righteous anger. And sometimes love has a righteous anger. It goes on to say, in whom you delight. This is still Malachi 3.1. In whom you delight, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So it's a promise that the Messiah would come to his temple. Now, the temple was a place for God to dwell among his people. When the children of Israel were leaving the promised land, they stopped by Mount Sinai, took them about two weeks to get there. When they got there, they made camp. Moses went up onto the mountain and received the law from God. Angels were somehow involved in it, but he received the law. He's carrying back down the Ten Commandments. If I'm remembering right, it took him 40 days to do it. It's another one of those 40-day passages in the Bible. And he's carrying down the tablets with the Ten Commandments that were written on by the finger of God. And when he gets back down to the people, the people had become impatient. They had taken their gold and silver they'd gotten from the Egyptians. They had given it to Aaron. Aaron fashioned a golden calf. When Moses is coming down the mountain, he sees them dancing around the golden calf. He gets upset, smashes the tablets. And God eventually says to Moses, now you get back up there and you make another set. So he had to bring another set down that they would put into the Ark of the Covenant. 
But in that law, a good section of it is the building of the tabernacle. And we know from the book of Hebrews that the tabernacle, which had the holiest of holies, which had the candelabra in it, which had the table of showbread, the incense altar, a larger altar that was out front, and the Ark of the Covenant behind the veil in the tabernacle. Now, tabernacle means tent. It was the place where God's presence would meet them above, that, uh, above the Ark of the Covenant over the lid, which is called the mercy seat. There were two angels that were stretched out wings towards each other. That was the mercy seat. That's where on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go and sprinkle the blood. And it was a picture of God's presence among the people. When David took over Jerusalem and he bought the threshing floor of, of, I think it was Ornan, he then had that for the temple, but God wouldn't let him build it. He was a warrior. He's a rather good warrior, by the way. He's a good general. He's a good soldier. And God said, you are a man of blood and you can't build my house, but your son shall build it. So I like to call it David and Solomon's temple. I don't know that it's just Solomon's temple, but it's David and Solomon's temple because David planned it. He prepared all the material for it. And then Solomon put it together. But when you would go to Jerusalem, there's Mount Moriah. And up on top of Mount Moriah was this temple that was originally, we have no idea the exact dimensions built by Solomon. But it was, had a lot of splendor, a lot of glory to it. And then the temple was destroyed by the Babylonians. God had warned them. God had given them many warnings. The temple was completely destroyed. And finally, after 70 years of being in captivity, God sent Ezra back to build the temple again and Nehemiah as well to help build the walls and the city. And so the temple was built again. The people who were alive when they were taken into captivity that had seen Solomon's temple wept when the new temple was built because the glory of that temple was nowhere near what the glory of Solomon's temple was. And then uh, Herod the Great came along sometime before, you know, B.C., before the time of Christ, and began to rebuild the temple. This is called the third temple. It's kind of really a rebuilding of the second temple or an expansion of the second temple. But you have the first temple, which is Solomon's. You have the second temple, which is Ezra's. You have the third temple, which is Herod's. Now, you've got a guy who's not even Jewish. He's an Edomite. And he, for the Jewish people, he's an incredible builder. He built Masada. He built Herodian. He built so many other things. And he built the temple. And it was impressive. But never in Herod's temple was God's presence. Because God's presence had left way back before the Babylonian destruction. God's presence had left the temple because of their idolatry. God was no longer going to be there. Now, they made sacrifices in the tabernacle and in the temple when God's presence was there. By the way, the Ark of the Covenants disappeared, right? Because that's where God's presence would manifest itself is above that Ark of the Covenant and it's gone. And all of this is a type of up in heaven. The Bible talks about seeing the Ark of the Covenant in heaven. Does that mean that God translated it there? Or was that a shadow of a heavenly Ark of the Covenant? So sacrifices were made so that they could have fellowship with God because it's necessary for blood to be shed in order to deal with our sins. Adam and Eve felt that right away. They tried to cover themselves. They ate fruit from a tree. Then they tried to cover themselves with the leaves from the tree. 
The fruit was inadequate to make them wise. The leaves were inadequate to cover their nakedness. And so God slaughtered an animal and covered them with animal skins. So right away after their sin, there was a shedding of blood and the sacrifices were meant to speak of that. Now, in the New Testament, we are the temple. The Holy Spirit is given to us. And, and Corinthians tells us that our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Besides that, Jesus said that if you believe in him, that him and his father will come and make their home with you. So they're here with you as a Christian right now. The Holy Spirit's inside of you. The Father, the Son are with you. Our, our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so the Bible encourages us to live right, to make sure that we don't defile this temple, but live properly. God's presence left the temple in Ezekiel chapter 10, if you want to look that up and you want to read the account of God's presence leaving the temple. Now let's break down these different issues that we find as we harmonize these. First of all, Jesus made a whip, which must have been a strange thing for the disciples. So they're following Jesus. He makes the whip in the first, the first time he turns over the tables. So they follow him into the temple. Jesus begins to make a whip. He doesn't go find a whip. He begins to make a whip. So I wonder if the disciples went, what's he doing? And they're like, I don't know. He look, looks like he's making a whip. What's he making a whip for? Then suddenly Jesus begins to use the whip. Now, we're not told whether he hit anybody with the whip. We don't know if he just used it as a way to drive them out or whether he struck animals or whether he struck humans. We just don't know. We can have our opinions, but opinions, eh, they aren't the word of God. The Bible just doesn't say. Is it possible that he whipped people with it? Is it possible that he whipped animals with it? Sure. He's upset, and we'll talk about why he's upset, and the zeal for God's house is consuming him. We'll talk about that here in a moment as well. But Jesus made a whip and then drove them out. He drove out those who bought and sold. I think one of the reasons that Jesus is so upset is because they are merchandising God. During the Passover was the largest holiday if that term could be used for these festivals, the, the seven festivals, the Passover was the largest of them. It was kind of like their equivalent to our Christmas. And can you think about the way that people merchandise Christmas? Have you ever noticed that? Has that ever dawned on you? That they merchandise Christmas in a great way? There's the old joke, how do you know that Thanksgiving is near? Because the Christmas decorations have gone up already. They're trying to get people to think about buying. And when the economy is bad and there's a bad Christmas season, then, then the economy is hurt even worse, right? So in Jerusalem, we're not quite sure exactly how many people lived there during the first century, the time that Jesus was alive, but it's believed there were between two and 300,000 that lived in the city of Jerusalem. Josephus takes the number of animals sacrificed at Jesus's last Passover, around 32, 33 AD, and he multiplies them by 10, believing there were 10 people for each sacrifice that was made. He comes to a number of 10 million people in Jerusalem over the Passover. Scholars generally believe that Josephus is wrong, 
that it was a, a miscalculation at, on some level. It would be almost impossible to bring 10 million people giving sacrifices. Even if you divide that by 10 to bring 100 million sheep through there. Josephus at times was a poor historian. That's important for us to understand. He did a very good job in certain areas of history. He did a poor job in other areas. So it's believed that there were a few hundred thousand sheep or, or lambs that were sacrificed at this particular Passover and that it had to be broken up between two days. And there were two different groups that had their Passover the days that the sacrifices were given over those days. And we know that John tells us that Jesus was killed on the day that the Passover lambs were killed. He is our Passover lamb that was killed on that particular day. So they're selling sheep. They're selling cattle. They're selling doves. If you wanted to give a sacrifice to God, first of all, traveling, if there were, if there were two or 300,000 there and another two or 300,000 that came in, there would be somewhere between 400 and 600,000 people in Jerusalem at the time. That would be a lot of cattle for people to be taking with them, a lot of sheep for them to take with them. Or they would bring their sheep from home. They would go out and get the best one they were supposed to get. When you gave a sacrifice to God, you weren't supposed to give him the really ugly looking lamb. We're going to give a sacrifice to God. We got this lamb over here, has a lot of problems. Let's give that to God. You were supposed to give God your best lamb a lamb that had no blemish, which would speak of Christ. And so you brought your lamb from your house. You traveled and you made it to, maybe this is the only Passover you came to. And as soon as you get into the temple, you look around and there's pushing and shoving and there's buying and selling and there's people bringing in things and, and things being taken away. And you take your lamb to be inspected by the priest. And he inspects it and he says, I'm sorry, your lamb isn't good enough. But if you go out to the bazaar of Annas, Annas was the high priest. These were his bazaars. These were his marketplaces. You can buy a lamb that is pre-approved. Can you imagine how you would feel? You finally make your way to Passover. You've had this wonderful pilgrimage, this ascent up into Jerusalem. And now when you get to the heart of it and you're ready to give your sacrifice and someone takes advantage of you financially that would taint your experience. Maybe you've had an experience tainted in church because a church over-focused financially. Maybe you've said something like, all churches care about is the money. And I always think about that when I'm going to teach on giving. You know, we teach as we make our way through the Bible. But when we teach on giving, we get to a passage that's on giving, I think there's going to be people there for the very first time and they're going to go, yep, this is what church is all about. But Jesus is so upset and drives out those who are buying and selling because this isn't supposed to be the experience of seeking God, turning it in to a, something financial. And quite frankly, we can say this now, we need to be very careful as churches that we don't do the same. I don't think it's wrong to sell a T-shirt, a jacket, a coffee cup, with the name of the church on it. I sometimes wonder about branding the church in such a way, about marketing the church in such a way. If we shouldn't just let the Holy Spirit do that, 
And I'm not saying at times that we haven't had jackets that say Calvary Tucson on them or t-shirts that say Calvary Tucson on them or mugs or glasses that say Calvary Tucson on it. I just wonder. The real problem would be when you are taking advantage of people. If you're selling a $10 t-shirt, that's one thing. If you're selling a $30 t-shirt, that's something entirely different. And we don't want things to turn into that. We don't want that to be what people walk into, into the church. And so we've always done that with a lot of caution because that's the last thing that we want to do. And churches oftentimes can be guilty of trying to make money. That's what they're doing. They're just trying to make money. They're doing things out of selfish ambition. And I think that Jesus would flip over the tables in a lot of churches. And I want to say too, I don't want Jesus to walk into this place and say, I don't like this. I want us to do things the way he wants us to do it. Now he drove out the livestock, which would mean that he was hurting people financially, right? These livestock belong to somebody. And he's like, get them out of here. And he just, just drives out the livestock. He poured out the money changers money, which I'm quite sure some of them never got it back when he poured it out. He flipped over the money changers tables. When you, when you went to the temple to pay your tithe, you had to pay it in temple shekels. So there were money changers. You would bring your Roman money. There was other money in those days as well, different places that had their money. And you had to change it into temple shekels. They would do that for you, but at an exorbitant price. So that if you brought 10% with you, you couldn't now give 10% to God because you had to pay a percentage. And so now you had less to give to God. So you couldn't give their, your tithe. And the tithe was important under the law. A nine, giving 9% isn't a tithe. Giving 10% is a tithe. So you wanted to bring your tithe to God and then you get to church and there's someone who takes advantage of you and you can't give the tithe to God. Can you imagine again how that would make them feel? People wanting to sincerely serve God, but those who are chosen to help people have a relationship with God are putting up barriers that are keeping people away from God. These today are pastoral ethics. There are certain pastoral ethics that need to be adhered to that are wrong if they are not. A pastor that starts to get involved in some kind of a, and I kind of want to be careful, some kind of an Amway. I want to be careful what I call it, all right? Uh, there are a lot of different business models that are close to that. And sometimes a pastor gets into that and then he will get the people in his church into it and he's just making money for himself. And so we are very careful to not allow that to go on. We don't want that to happen in church. We don't want people to bring things in that they might use to try to take advantage of people. A pastor is violating that when he tries to make money with someone. It's a pastoral violation. When you're talking to a pastor and you say, how are you doing? And he says, not so good. I'm really struggling. I'm not able to pay all my bills. Because here's a pastor who has maybe buried someone you loved, maybe married you, maybe been there during marriage difficulties, all of the things that pastors do, and you would almost do anything for them because they've been there for you. And then they use that to be able to get some money back from that. 
And I just want you guys to be able to identify it. I want you to be able to see it because that's an ugly thing that happens when churches just get about making money. Now, Jesus stopped people from carrying goods through the temple. He didn't even like the scene. Here they are in the court of the Gentiles. And maybe this is what frustrated him so much. The, the people of Israel were supposed to be a light to the Gentile world. And way back to Abraham, when God was creating the people of Israel by Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God said, one of your descendants is going to bless all nations. So in that way, Israel, the nation of Israel, was going to bless the entire world. And here was the court of the Gentiles saw as so trivial by the leadership of the temple that they turned that into a market when they were supposed to be reaching out to them. And so Jesus stopped people from even going through with their goods. He flipped over the seat of those who sold doves. Again, I'm not sure what that is. And then he made statements. While he was doing this, it's recorded that he made some statements. I have five of them. Let me give them to you. In Luke 19, 46, Jesus said, saying to them, it is written, my father's house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Now we know what he's upset about. This is a place where they're supposed to seek God, but people are establishing things that rip people off. They're taking advantage of people. In John 2.16, he said to those who sold doves, take these things away and do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Jesus answered and said to them, destroy the temple and in three days I will rise it up. Now, this is a little different statement. This is not a den of thieves. This is making it merchandise. And again, as, as a church, you have to be careful that you're not merchandising people, that you don't have someone in your, on your staff that's head of merch sales. It's not what we're about. We're about ministering to people. We're about caring for people in some of the darkest days of their lives. That's why we're here. It's about helping people to recognize the gospel and come to Christ and then to get serious about following him. And we won't, don't want anything to get in the way. And they had allowed that to get in the way. And so then in, in Mark eleven seventeen, he says, then he taught them saying, is it not written? My house, house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. Again, here we get the idea of the Gentiles. This is a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. So in this one, it's after he did that, he sat down and taught them that. In Matthew 21, 13, he said to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And he said, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, talking about Hosanna, king. Um, and he said to them, yes, have you never read out of the mouths of babes and nursing infants? You have perfected praise. So at this point, he's receiving praise at the same time that he cleansed the temple. In John 2, 17, it says, then his disciples remembered, it is written, zeal for your father's house has eaten me up. 
This is as much about zeal as it is about righteous anger, seeing something that is obviously not right, but also having zeal for his father's house. What the temple was supposed to be is what it was not at all. And it was going to be destroyed because of that within 40 years of the resurrection of Jesus, less than that, 37 years from the resurrection of Jesus. And then let me read you Psalms 69, 9. Interesting thing about Psalm 69, it is the most quoted Psalm in the New Testament. And it's quoted in a lot of different places with a lot of different verses. It's a great Psalm to go back and study. You'll see the connection immediately to the different places you find it in the New Testament. But here's what it says in Psalm 69, 9. Because zeal for your father's house has eaten me up and the reproaches of those who reproach, you have fallen, uh, uh, yeah, you have fallen on me. So this is zeal for the house of God that is supposed to be one thing, but ends up being something else. Now, after Jesus is done flipping the tables, he begins to heal people. The Bible says that he went and began to heal the sick. So he goes from this angry position to all of a sudden now having compassion and healing people. And I think that tells us again that his anger was with the religious leaders. His anger was, was with the merchants who were just trying to make money, that he really cared about the people who were there. And then throughout the rest of the week, he taught in the temple. He would return and teach. Now, this is why I say that this is a miracle. It's a supernatural act because they could have had security that would have taken Jesus out. All it would have taken is one really big guy. We're not told anything about what Jesus looked like, but I don't imagine he was really, really big. All it would have taken is one really big guy to go settle down, big guy, grab him and, and get him. But there was something about what he did. I think it was a miracle like turning the water into wine. Jesus cleanses out this temple because he is Yahweh and this temple is not what God wants it to be. Jesus has great mercy and compassion on the humble and wrath on the charlatan. Let me make that statement again, and then I'm going to expound a little bit. Jesus has great mercy and compassion on the humble, but wrath on the charlatan. And unfortunately, throughout the years, the word charlatan has been connected with Christianity in some way or another. And, and we are aware of it. There were the faith healers of the 50s and 60s that notably were just about making money. That's what they did. They would hold their meetings. They would pray for people. Some of them would declare people healed. God told me you were healed. They were a false prophet because that person was not healed. They would claim that they could heal anybody if they had enough faith and they passed the Kentucky Fried Chicken buckets around for everybody to take from them. Those are charlatans. They're doing nothing but taking advantage of people's desire to serve and follow God. Uh, a charlatan, I have the definition for a charlatan, a person falsely claiming to have special knowledge and skill who is a fraud. And there are those in churches who are charlatans. And it's the furthest thing that we want us to be at all. Now, we are the temple. The Father and the Son have taken up place with us. And this gives us some things to avoid in church gatherings. And again, I'm, I'm willing, whenever I'm reading the scriptures, I'm always evaluating my own life. 
I don't want to be guilty of being the guy that teaches but doesn't evaluate where I'm at. So here we are looking at what Jesus did there and I want to evaluate the church. I want us who are in leadership to be thinking about what we do and the kind of things we do all the way from all of our ministries, from the school to our bridge home, which helps prisoners come out of the penitentiary and back onto the streets, uh, from our Sunday school, from what we do here, from what we do in the coffee shop, that everything that we do would be the way that God wants it to be done, that we would be an open book, that we would make sure that we are not taking advantage of people. Our desire is to help people get closer to God. The Bible says to do nothing out of selfish ambition. There's been, and I debated whether or not to give the names of these churches. Um, there have been a couple of things here. And you guys who know about it, you know about it. If you want to look it up, you can look it up. Um, so there's been a podcast that became the number one podcast in America for about three weeks. And it was about a church in Seattle that became very successful and then collapsed. I listened to the podcast and I encourage young pastors that I know to listen to it as well. Because you can identify spiritual abuse by the things that are said in the podcast. I think that there might be some difficulties. It's by Christianity Today. And I think there could be some difficulties in gloating in the failures of others. And we want to examine our hearts and make sure that we're not doing that. That our hearts would go out towards those that face the failure of taking a church that was 15,000 members and then closing it down. It actually shut down. It had several locations. Some of those locations just changed names and continued to be churches. But you can learn a lot from that. Then there's another television program that's on now about a national church that had certain problems. One of them was that there was some sexual misconduct in the church. And instead of the church just being open about it, they wanted to, to, to deal with it inwardly, in-house. And so they didn't bring in the police. And it ended up being abuse towards several people. I like to say to our staff, and I tell them on, on a, I don't know, semi-regular basis every few months, Listen, if something happens at our church, if there is a sexual assault, if there is a molestation, Lord forbid that that happens. It's the last thing we would want. But the last thing we would do is deal with it in-house. If something like that happens in Calvary, Tucson, we will call the police and we will make announcements. There's no reason to protect the brand of Calvary, Tucson unless we're about Calvary, Tucson. If we're trying to build Calvary Tucson and that's the brand we're worried about, then I can see you trying to cover things like that up. But if you are living for Christ, if you are lifting him up and exalting him, who cares even if the brand is destroyed? Who cares even if people said Calvary Tucson, we are going to go there because a couple of horrible things happen there. Besides that, when you cover it up, the cover up becomes a bigger deal. It's better just to go, this happened. As soon as we learn that something has happened, which again, heaven forbid, but if it does, we will make it public. We will not hide anything. And I don't want to just give a little direction to pastors that may be listening to this. Do the same. Don't, don't cover it up. Don't hide it. People, 
if you don't cover it up, they're not going to think you were part of it. It's, it's got, I don't understand why they're doing it and why they're hiding it in the first place. But I think that these are great lessons for us. This is a really well-known church, national church, okay? Like I said, it's not a surprise to some of you. Um, I just won't use the names now. You can look it up if you're interested. Just look at, you know, international church that had sexual corruption and you'll find it. And again, I hope that if you do, there would be just a heartbreaking that what was supposed to be for people to really draw near to God ended up being something about making money and protecting the brand probably so they could keep making their money so people wouldn't fight against it. And I think that God is just as upset with churches today as he was in the temple on that day who do such things. So Philippians 2, 3, and 4 says this, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but for the interest of others. Yes, you look out for your own interest, but there's nothing to be done out of selfish ambition. What a great scripture for a church. Do what you do for souls. Do what you do to minister to people. And don't let anything be out of selfish ambitions. Hebrews 13 it's an interesting passage. It talks about obeying those, being submissive to those who are in authority over you, pastoring. Again, I talk to our staff. This is just a little bit of insight into how our church operates. I tell our staff, we, are, we have to give God an account for the souls of the men and women who are here. We want to take care of them well. We want to love them. We don't want to take advantage of them in any way. Listen to what it says in Hebrews 13, 17. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive for they watch out for your souls as must one who must give an account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief for that would be unprofitable to you. Now, I really like that last part because I want us to be able to minister with joy. And if you can make it a joy for your pastors, for the, for the staff of the church to minister, what an awesome thing. But the interesting part here to me isn't obey those who rule over you and be submissive. That's the role when we're attending a church and we are to do that because they're watching out for your souls. But the interesting part to me is they will have to give an account. God's going to ask us an account for the souls that we have watched over. And are we doing that in such a way? Is there something that needs to be corrected in any level, at any level of the church that needs to be corrected? Another passage that I thought would be interesting for this study is the direction for pastors out of the book of 1 Peter. I want to read you this passage. I, uh, I had been a pastor for, I don't know, maybe five or six years when me and my wife took a trip to California. And um, we went to, we were there for two weeks. We went one week to uh, Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, of course, right? As a Calvary Chapel pastor, you want to go to Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, hear Pastor Chuck teach. The other place we wanted to go was Fullerton, California, because at that time, Charles Swindoll was teaching at Fullerton, California. And so I wanted to go see Charles Swindoll. I've been able to hear him twice. I was at a pastor's conference where he spoke and I was able to go and see him. And if you guys know anything about me, I love him. I love his teachings. I would like to be Charles Swindoll, <laughs> but I'm not and I won't be. <laughs> Sorry, my allergies are driving me crazy here. If I'm snorting a little bit, I'm trying not to, all right? Uh, a little windy in Tucson this time of year is tough on allergies, isn't it? 
so um, I went to go see Charles Wendell. And we go in, and I pick up the bulletin, and there's an outline for 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. And I thought, here I am. I've been a pastor for about five years. I'm a young pastor. I'm 30 years old or so. And I go to see Charles Wendell, and he's covering the passage on pastors. I just felt like, God, you are doing something right now. Here I am. And God really spoke to me through it. But here's the passage that he covered. And here's the passage that God gives to pastors and elders. An elder, um, a bishop, a shepherd are all the same things in the Bible. When you read about an elder, when you read about a shepherd, um, apostles today are not really apostles like they were in the Bible. When you hear about apostle so-and-so, okay, a bishop is just a pastor. Um, a deacon is someone who ministers to the physical needs of the body. And so he says to the elders, these are pastors. The elders who are among you, I exhort. I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the suffering of Christ. So this is Peter saying, I was an eyewitness of his suffering and I am a fellow elder with you and also a partaker of the glory that was revealed. He's talking about being on the Mount of Transfiguration, that he was there when Jesus was crucified and a partaker of the glory. So then he says this, shepherd, this is where we get our word pastor from, the idea of a pastor, there was no qualifications for pastors in the Bible. A pastor is a shepherd, shepherd the flock of God, which is among you, serving as overseers. Now, there's a word that's a biblical word for pastors. He is an overseer. He's just overseeing the flock. But it's not his flock. And this is something that we pastors can do too, especially senior pastors. We can often say, I was speaking at my church this week. And I always like it if I say it, if someone corrects me. Because it's certainly not my church. And if it is, you shouldn't be here. If you go to a place where someone, this is my church, it's like, well, maybe we should not be here. Shepherd the flock of God, which is among you. It's God's. Serving as overseers. Not by compulsion, but willingly. Not because you have to. If you feel like I'm called to be a pastor and I have to be a pastor, no, you don't. You, you could go do other things. Again, I heard Charles Swindoll a tape from him years ago where he said, if you can do anything else but pastor, then go do it. And then... If you feel like you have to do it, don't do it. It should be something willingly. It should be something that you want to do. And, and if you feel like you have to, that's a horrible place for a pastor to be. Do you know that the average pastor of a church lasts only three years? We could talk about a lot of reasons why that would be the case, but I think some of it would be burnout. I think some of it would be doing things because they have to do it. Listen, a little insight into a, a teaching pastor's life. Coming up with a message, Sunday, Wednesday, Sunday, Wednesday, Sunday, Wednesday is not the easiest thing in the world to do. Coming up with a significant message that might be used by God and sometimes you feel like it isn't what God wants. But we're supposed to do it because we want to do it, not because we have to do it. So he says, not by compulsion, but willingly. Don't let anybody push you into it. You do it because you want to do it. Not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. In ministry, there's always opportunity for dishonest gain for people that have the wrong hearts. And so you've got to be doing it, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, not for being lords over those entrusted to you. Jesus said, in the kingdom of God, leadership is different than in the world. 
In the world, those who lord over people, lord over them. But in the kingdom of God, you are a servant to people. That's who will be the greatest among you are those who are servants. So our role is to serve people, not to lord over them. And if you find yourself in a church where there are people lording over you, telling you who you can and cannot marry, it happens more than you think. Telling people that you have to stay at their church, that's lording over people. Telling people, look, we were one big family here and once you've come to this church, you can't leave. That's manipulation. That's a type of manipulation. You get to choose the church, the pastors, that you put yourself under their authority. And if you ever feel like this isn't where I should be, you get to choose to leave and find someplace else. And one of the reasons that I think people have gotten greatly offended and greatly hurt at churches is because when they're ready to leave, the pastor takes it personal. And I've, I've seen it too many times. He takes it personal. It turns into a giant ugly thing. When someone comes to me and says, Pastor Robert, we want you to know we're leaving the church. I always, my, my next question is always, where are you going? They'll tell me what church they're going to. And I'll say, I hope that God uses you in great ways there. Now, they want to tell me why they're leaving. I don't necessarily want to hear it. <laughs> right? I mean, it's after a service. I'm a little tired. I don't know. Maybe at another time I would want to hear it, but I don't necessarily want to hear it. Maybe I should hear it. Right? But if someone starts telling you, you have to be here. God put you here. They are overstepping their bounds. If they're telling you how much you should give, they're overstepping their bounds. If they're telling you who to marry, they're overstepping their bounds. They don't have to live with the person you do. Right? They're overstepping their bounds. They have been given authority to lead people to Christ and closer to him. That's the authority of a pastor, a leader, whether a, whether a teaching pastor or another pastor in the church. Our authority is to serve people and help to bring them to Christ, not to lord over those who are entrusted to us. But being examples to the flock, it says, living for Christ in front of them so they can see it. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. When you minister, this is the only crown that looks like it's a crown of rewards. We talked about heavenly rewards a while back. I told you the crown of glory is the only one that looks like it's a reward. And that's for people who faithfully pastor. And by the way, it's not just pastors with the title pastor who, who shepherd. Not at all. One of the questions I get regularly is whether or not women can be pastors. Since pastors is not an official word, shepherds is not an official word we find in the Bible, I find it hard to come down on that line. Now, there are other pastors at our church. I've had this conversation with them and they think that a woman shouldn't be in the role of a pastor. For me, I don't know why a pastor couldn't be a woman's pastor or couldn't be a children's pastor. But for sure, women shepherd and God gives them skills to be able to do that. And some women shepherd so efficiently and effectively that if you drove them out of it, they wouldn't be able to do it as God wants them to do it. So let's make our church the place that Jesus wants our church to be. And this is as much speaking of me to me as to any of you, that we would never allow it to be anything other than what it's meant to be. That we would first of all, look at ourselves from this passage. And if Jesus needs to cleanse this temple, 
then let's have him cleanse this temple. And the church that God has established, may we be the church that we're supposed to be to help people come to Christ and never get caught up in any of these things. I think the church ought to judge itself. Jesus said, if you judge yourself, then you'll avoid judgment. But it's like a good, hard look at what we do regularly. Not just when we come to a passage like this, but regularly. Take a good, hard look at our lives, that we're living for Christ the way that we're supposed to, that he can be lifted up, that he can be exalted, that he can be glorified. Now, was Jesus wrong for getting angry? Of course not. What did he show us? He showed us the Father, that the Father gets angry when we take advantage of people. Don't take advantage of people in your life. This is the closing, by the way. Don't take advantage of people in your life. You are the light of the world. You're a city set on a hill that can't be hidden. You are the one that God has chosen to be the salt of the earth. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit so that all of these things apply to us individually. It certainly applies to churches. And when churches face this passage, they ought to reevaluate everything they're doing. But we ought to reevaluate where we're at with Christ as well so that we can make sure that he looks upon us with favor as individuals as we represent him everywhere we go. Stand with me, would you? And let's pray together. Father, thank you so much as we take time to look at this passage, which helps us to understand what the church is supposed to be, what the temple was supposed to be, and even why the temple ended up being destroyed. Because it wasn't doing what it was supposed to do. And you left the temple a long time ago because people weren't serving and following you. May we serve you, love you, follow you. May we do what we do, whatever it is, for you. And if there's any area in our church, in our lives, in our ministries that are not done for you, then I pray you'd speak to us about it. That we might have everything that we do glorify you and lift up your name. And we thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.